you're on the air. Don't say anything crazy. And we're live. Right, so today, Brother Bear, the topic we're going to be bloody discussing is Buddhism. Where does Buddhism fit in the modern world? How can we bring it into our daily lives to improve um, ourselves, those around us, and society? Hey, up, lad. That sounds like a lovely, wholesome topic to round off 2020, which, you know, for many reasons has been a difficult year for many. I think difficult is a word that you can interchange with terrible, atrocious, <laughs> and absolutely shite. Yeah. On, <laughs> on many levels. It's, it's one of those years that, as they say, the bar has been <clears throat> set very low. Yeah, so I think we're all hoping to go into 2021, make the most. I think we're realising more than ever how precious our time is. And, you know, probably some of the teachings of Buddhism would be good to heed going into the next year. Mm. Yes, yeah, I think that's uh, it's a good way of putting it. Buddhism is the religion of no religion. Um, it's It's been titled that just because it's less about divinity or self-worship or even adhering to um, a very rigid set of principles. Um, but it's, it's more about sort of walking the Tao, um, and Taoism and Buddhism flow into one another to some degree, um, and, and sort of floating on the lily of life. As vague as that sounds, uh, the more that you burrow into that and meditate into that, it says actually a lot of um, very reassuring um, and therapeutic teachings that can come from that. Yeah, <clears throat> that was one of the impressions I got, and I was quite surprised when I first fully understood that concept, that it, it's not a very rigid um, religion as far as religions go. Actually, you know, if you look mm. at things like the Dalai Lama, you know, I think he was asked sort of if there was scientific evidence that refuted some of the beliefs of Buddhism, would you be willing to look into them? And he said, absolutely. You know, it'd be stupid not to. Mm. So it's sort of that open, radical open-mindedness um, from a religious standpoint. I've not seen any religion quite like it, or at least open to the idea of revisiting um, dogma and willing to, mm. well, I suppose, fundamentally change dogma according to what the prevailing scientific data might be showing or indicating. Yes, that's quite rare. Um, and we live in a time as well where the Abrahamic religions um, that are more black and white are actually becoming um, more and more popular. Um, so, so, for example, um, Islam is, is very much overtaking um, Protestantism in, in its popularity. Um, and I, th I think that there's some, some quite obvious reasons behind that. Um, one of which is I think this is a kind of a time of dissonance and disorder mm. um, and polarization and alienation. So we've seen that sort of in the in the way that um, finance is distributed. Um, we've seen that in the way that people are so uncompromising and polarized in their political views. Um, so I think that people are sort of also being pushed towards more uh, extreme ideas in the Abrahamic religious world um, and and the reason I wanted to talk about this is because Buddhism sort of sat there in the corner quietly um, and it's it's not gaining very much traction but it's 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 definitely there in the background working away when people need that 
that place of refuge, spiritual refuge and emotional refuge. Yeah. Now, you're quite right about the Abrahamic religions. They're much more sort of traditional in the sense of what a religion is and what it constitutes. I remember that there was mm. um, that film, I don't know if you've seen it, The Two Popes. Um, and in that film, they were sort mm. of looking at the interesting contrasting dynamics and leadership styles and beliefs of Pope Francis versus Pope Benedict. And one of the sort of Pope Benedict was all about dogma and, you know, staying the course and holding hard on to centuries of beliefs and values and sort of the reason he did so was because he believed sort of if you became or sway too much to today's social dynamics and ideologies, you'd basically become irrelevant in the next iteration or generation of ideologies and, and you can't allow a religion to bend to that extent because mm. essentially mm. a religion is supposed to be quite um, firm and rigid it's not supposed to be swaying according to the whims of one generation to the next yes that's a very interesting way of looking at it i've not considered that before um i think that's a um, that's quite an astute point because we're in a we're in quite a faddy time um whether you're looking at politics um the ideas around identity technology you know everyone i feel is trying to one up and um keep up with with the latest zeitgeist mm. um and i think that that is very much at odds with traditional abrahamic religion um so not saying you know to be completely dogmatic but i think there is a I think there's some sense to, you know, not necessarily being compromising because you become irrelevant in the next 20, 30, 40 years, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I suppose mm. there, there needs to be some sort of consistency um, year on year, decade on decade, century on century. Otherwise, I suppose it ceases to become a religion and maybe just becomes mm. a bit, maybe just the prevailing um, social dynamics mm. and beliefs at the time, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and I think I think that um, when we talk about Abrahamic religions, it's you know when we're talking about Judaism, uh, Catholicism, um, Islam, you know, there one one great quote um, is that te the teaching of Buddhism can awaken anyone. So fundamentally, you can have Jewish Buddhas, you can have Catholic Buddhas, mm. you can have secular Buddhas, you know. Um, it, this is by no means a doctrine or a way of life that is just exclusive to Buddhists. Um, you know, if you understand what the Zen is um, and you understand that it's the true nature of expressing oneself moment by moment, then whatever your religion, um, you can be a Buddhist. And that's that's the beautiful thing about it being the religion of no religion. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it's colorless in that sense. And I suppose it therefore doesn't alienate any one person, even if they are of a particular religious persuasion already. You can sort of mm. um, almost integrate Buddhist teachings into your current framework. Is that right? Yeah, you can to a very large extent. Um, I mean, it's it's a flexible um, religion, and I think that's why it stood the test of time. Um, you know, the the original Prince Siddhartha um, Gautama. Uh, sort of came up with the the ideas behind Zen Buddhism some two and a half thousand years ago, um, so it it's comparatively newer than than a lot of Abrahamic religions. Well, a couple that come to mind, um, 
and it's it carries a sort of flexible and accommodating attitude towards different cultures different religions and beliefs um and that's why it was able to be adapted very well into western culture mm. um and and to be used you know by people who actually follow a christian faith mm. or people who follow a secular faith mm. so um i th- i think the you know the title of this podcast is is going to surround modern buddhism we're going to talk a little bit about you know some of the underlying doctrines um or if you can even call them that because they're less than dogmatic but we we the title is modern buddhism because it's so flexible and adaptable mm. it's very interesting i one of my previous flatmates his brother apparently was a buddhist and uh, you know he said he was a buddhist for a number of years i don't know whether he was still at the time but it sounds like something you can somewhat drop in and out of it's not something you like i suppose in the abrahamic religions you'd expect a man and it usually is a man to be a rabbi or priest mm. for the since from their ordination right up until death and basically essentially it's a set of vows for life mm. it, it's it's certainly very different to that i mean what i'll say is that it's it's not dogmatic it doesn't demand um a dedication to mm. divinity yep. um, for say an ordained minister um but I will say that if you don't practice it regularly, um, you will forget about it and you'll you'll stop to take and reap the benefits of it. So uh, first and foremost, the sort of meditative aspects of it um, and certain practices, whether it's, you know, the way you treat others and yourself, whether it's practicing yoga and, you know, practicing that through a more Buddhist lens. Mm. Uh, if you If yeah. you give it, say, a year without doing that, then you can't really claim to be a buddhist um but it's certainly a um it's not it's not something that yet demands some kind of divinity to an ordained minister or priest yeah okay fine that makes sense Mm. yeah and I, i think this whole sort of idea of mindfulness sort of stems from buddhist teachings if i'm not wrong you know that can take multiple forms you mentioned yoga um meditation which is something that's increasingly being adopted into the psychological mainstream as a tool and actually quite a potent tool if used correctly and it, sort of the way mm. i understood mindfulness and i don't know if you want to get into this later but we're sort of just yeah. of almost watching your thoughts um and watching them almost as a third party spectator sitting almost at a distance watching your mind flick through thoughts whether that's quite chaotic and sort of scrambled thoughts or quite logical sequential one by one thoughts and maybe looking into what those mm. thoughts are and allowing just for a moment that those 10 or 15 minutes, whatever it is you're doing the meditation for, for that pond of the mind to still a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's a very, a very nice way of putting it. Um, mindfulness is it can be described in a lot of different ways. Um, I think I think one of my favorites is that it's sort of the practice of paying attention to the present yeah um the present moment and i think that it's very sensory um in that sense um and as you just said andre it talks about you know the it talks to rather the the concentration on breathing methods and guided imagery in your mind yeah um and again there's so so many benefits that can come from that but mindfulness is um i think the biggest the biggest issue um especially in the west in how we interpret mindfulness um or how we interpret zen ideas is that we try and 
place an intellectual look on it. Mm. Um, so, and I know you and I have had a number of conversations where we've talked about the the shortcomings of academia for the sake of academia. Yeah. Um, and and how sort of over complex um, and, and you know you get to the situation where you can't see the wood for the trees. Um, right. So right from the get go with Zen and mindfulness, you need to you need to park the brakes on the intellectual look and, and everything that we've, the uh, every way we've been taught to interpret things through university and school. Um, and actually just to stop and breathe, take full awareness of what's happening around you, even if it's nothing at all. Yeah, I think you mentioned the breath there twice and that was a key teaching from the psychologist I used to see and he, he was talking about how focusing on the breath is sort of the focal point of the mindfulness exercise or the meditation and if I am now sort of remembering, thinking back, he did say, you know, the, the, the thoughts will inevitably come and go, whatever they are. Um, but you've just got to be careful not to sort of aggressively pull or get angry at yourself for being diverted inevitably, which is what will happen for many years as you begin to mm. practice meditation and mindfulness. But almost guide yourself back to the breathing and the rhythm of your breath and not trying to breathe in a rhythmic or sort of um, sequential manner, but just letting the breath breathe itself and not you know trying to uh, have an experience other than the one you're having mm. to just simply mm. be and experience the thoughts and if there are distracting thoughts almost leading your mind away from those thoughts gently as opposed to aggressively almost like you were to ask a child be like thank you i've noticed the thought we'll come back to that later now let's get mm. let's get back to the breathing we were doing yeah that's right that's right and, and i think you need to guide mindfulness and mindful breathing exercises um, with that lack of coercion and, and those, you know, very gentle pushes. Mm. Um, and I think mindfulness as a practice very much flows into the idea of Zen. Um, and obviously Zen is a word that's been kind of annoyingly popularized, you know, try to be Zen. Uh, I would try to be Zen when I'm being patient with my partner or when I'm, <laughs> You know, when I'm when I'm trying to get through my workload or whatever. Hashtag Zen. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But it's actually it's an so ancient word. Then. <laughs> so then. So then right oh. now. Oh my god, my brunch was then. Screw that is not your no. <laughs> Don't even I was gonna go on 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 a on a on a long line of expletives there, but I stopped myself rather than and and engaged my own Zen. <laughs> engage your own zen to to avoid insulting then <laughs> or, or well it, it's everyone has their own interpretation right and people jump on these hurrah words but zen zen in in the in its essence is very similar to to being mindful because it's the true it's our true nature of exper expressing ourselves moment by moment um and realizing the joy of just being yeah um and it isn't a belief system. It's not a doctrine or or a set of principles. Um, it's you know, there's so many different terms for it: the absolute, uh, ultimate reality. Um, it's it's very much um, the direct experience of life. Um, and then you have the practice of zazen, which is meditation, mm -hmm. um, and that's that sort of you know, almost in a very purist way, experiencing the zen, um, because what you're doing there is you could have okay in our zen box you could have you know you're practicing archery um this is what i would do mm. and i'd be out in the woods practicing archery and only when i'm really in that 
absolute um, ultimate reality is when I put that arrow, the point of the arrow, um, right in that bullseye mm. at 100 yards away. Mm. Um, but when I experience the Zazen, um, it's that exact same energy, but we're talking about it in a meditative environment. So that can be anywhere. That mm. can be on my bedroom floor. That can be when I'm waiting at the dentist, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's where you, I suppose, also start to slowly, if you practice it well enough over years, um, is that you you start to see yourself as interconnected with nature around you and all aspects of what the world and the universe is. Mm. So I, I, it sounds like a key uh, teaching of Zen is to, to very much be in the present moment um, mm. because that's probably, at least for my for me harder than ever and it's a weird phenomenon because as children we do that anyway we're absolutely we're the most in the moment i think we'll ever be in our lives and i, I think we almost mm. unlearn that unfortunately as we grow up through sort of adult concerns and obligations and responsibilities we can't afford to live in the now as much as we used to so unfortunately that's the reality um you know we live in a capitalist system and whether we like it or not we are all capitalists um, because we all engage in you know processes of working and earning and saving um, and you're right more and more um, you have to be thinking of the future um, you know in these troubling times but also in the past 20 years you know we've seen a successions of wage compression and all these other forces that basically make us uh, I guess you could say save for today um, for a better tomorrow or prepare for today for a better tomorrow, however you want to turn it. Um, but those are some good practices in, in other areas of life. But sometimes they're very much at odds with a Zen because of the mental capacity that they take up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's um, all too easy sort of to be continually worrying about the future and never truly experiencing the present. And then, sort of mm. in a paradoxical sense you never really experience anything because you're not really in the moment at that given point because we really don't have the future it's in no way guaranteed the present moment mm. kind of is all we have mm. the past is gone the present is barely there and then the future doesn't exist so all you have is mm. the present millisecond so I, I think you know it's such an invaluable teaching and obviously with all of these things it's easier said than done but I think mm. it's still something so valuable to truly experience whatever you're experiencing, whether it's as mundane as washing the dishes that can, you can find Zen in and truly, truly like being there and present in something as mundane as that and find joy mm. in that. Probably. I've, I mean, there's, there's been moments where I find that as well. Absolutely. Because you can, you can become, um, a, I suppose, you can become acutely aware of your breathing and just that one task um and there can be a lot of joy in that ultimate realism mm. um there's there's that turn of phrase you know a healthy person wants a million things a sick person only wants one yeah um and there is some joy in that just because the the want of one thing and say in this case that is to just solely focus on the present and not think about what if, what if, what about this or that outcome? What about all these issues that I may encounter in the future or have done in the past? 
that focus on the present is an, a very transformative process. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, but there's, there's all too many distractions, you know, to, to kind of pull you one way or the other. Um, you know, and even looking into the past, that there's you know a plethora of reasons mm. why why for you not to be engaged fully with the present. And I wonder, you know, can you still be in sort of a mindfulness Zen state? when really meaningfully engaged with even if it's something like work or manual labor i suppose mm. if you're truly in that moment and not thinking about you're only in that present moment then that is a form of zen as well or or not i think that is a form of zen i i would i would say yes to that and mm. i've experienced it with the most mundane task in the previous job of answering emails mm. and just for a solid hour or two i completely forgot who i was yes. and even even though that was through a ridiculous uh, medium or a very sad medium or whatever you want to call it mm. don't focus on the medium for a second the fact that i forgot who i was and in a sense i kind of lost my ego even though it was <laughs> an hour or two yeah. <laughs> that's it, that that kind of distraction yeah actually completely decluttered my mind yeah that's very true i suppose when you're completely meaningfully and so utterly engaged with something in the moment then it really does mm. there is a sort of mild ego death that happens and i completely mm. relate to that and sort of I, you know if i look back when i used to draw and paint then there were times when you know two hours would go by but i didn't feel them but because i was so in the moment but it wasn't me painting but it was and I think that was sort of that, or what the, they call the flow state, but it's just when you're completely mm. in the moment and time seems to distort. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think what you will also find as a byproduct of that, even though this wasn't your goal, is you will get maximum efficiency in what you're doing. Yeah. You, you'll reach your true north, and whether that's painting or doing archery, learning a language, answering emails, doing the dishes, you will get that maximum efficiency. Um, yeah, and 100%. that's why, yeah. yeah. And the, the, in previous times, you know, in, in times of antiquity, that's why the, um, in, in, and again, I'm referencing archery, but the, um, uh, the, the, the Buddhist monks that practiced it referred to it as the mystical flight of the arrow um, yeah. in, in their, you know, in their native Sanskrit. And that was because they became the arrow. They yeah. reached maximum efficiency. They forgot who they were in the sense that they suffered or rather enjoyed that ego death. Mm. And just tell me about, because you've been practicing archery. It's really, really quite a cool hobby. And I suppose something you've have the luxury of taking up in somewhere like uh, with lots of outdoors and the opportunity to practice in somewhere like Canada, Alberta. And mm. Just tell me about like how that's maybe taught you or you can see maybe elements of Zen and mindfulness in the uh, archery itself. And even mm, in, you know, yeah. through, through talk me through like the motions and what parts of it sort of, and, and when you snap out of that Zen trance almost. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think that um, what I would sum up as where I'm getting to with archery um, is sort of almost, uh, it sounds quite, funny to most i'm sure but um an out-of-body experience um mm. and and a oneness with the the arrow the string uh, the drawstring the the bow and the target that i'm hitting um so these these are all kind of 
one one could see them as kind of quite vague fa- uh, phrases um but it's it's kind of a magical moment that's beyond life uh, beyond earth um and what happens is from my perspective you know when i've got that arrow in my hand and i'm mm. drawing it back and i'm focusing on that target and i'm continuing that old adage of aim small miss small which is a very much a a popular term amongst hunters shooters trappers archers um and that is you know focusing on such a fine point that when if you miss you are still to some degree going to succeed in in the flight path mm-hmm. of the projectile um you are on that sort of spiritual mission to get that arrow that tip of the arrow into whatever you're shooting at um whether it's you know the crease of the uh the white-tailed deer's back or whether it's at that that tiny red dot that mm. you've painted on a tree um so that's when when you draw that arrow back and you you're taking could be 10 to 20 seconds just to focus on that very fine point then you reach your stream of consciousness um you reach that level of spiritual awareness which by the way is when you're you're starting to suffer the uh the ego death mm-hmm. um and then you just plunge into yourself and nature all around you mm. um so that would be sort of my sensory description of uh, an archery trip um wow. so and it's yeah. a complete complete a, you know commitment to uh, to the zen really yeah, I suppose it almost sounds like the way you're talking about it, almost a whole spectrum and arc of experience in the space of about 30 seconds or a minute. Mm, mm, yeah, and and the beauty of it is you're not even trying. It's yeah. nothing that requires um, deep intellectual thought. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's nothing, it doesn't require studying, and you know what, it doesn't even require that much experience beyond just doing the same action again and again um and having that that goal in mind yeah wow that's amazing it's, it's great that you found something like that it's really um engaged that uh mm. zen and, and mindfulness yeah and, and i think not to go on an archery tangent because you know it's it's one activity i do but you know it's 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 an activity that in in the modern world was actually developed by the understanding of um native americans and and how they practiced archery and how they basically became really accurate yeah. um and do you do you have you heard i may have mentioned this to you before brother bear but you know the story of ishi i think you've told me about the, it yeah but do remind me just the the capture of um if you need a refresher on this it's basically just the capture of uh, the last of the yoni indians mm-hmm. um in in orville california and it was 1911 and at that time there was a bounty on um native americans in 1911 so you could capture one and basically get money for bringing them into custody um so these were very dark times for for yeah, natives. Crazy. Yeah, and it's not that long ago. But but the when they they captured Ishi, um, they I think it was Pope and Young studied him. Pope and Young were very um, 
you know avid archers um and i think it was uh art young was actually he came from uh, san jose university one of the universities in california he was mm. a um i suppose he was a paleontologist and uh, he was uh, he was a studier of of different peoples throughout history um but anyway they took ishi's uh, i suppose spiritual relationship or zen relationship with archery to create modern bow hunting and modern archery wow so they took all of those learnings well it sounded like up until that point the native americans were probably far more in touch with um what archery meant and the i suppose the point of archery in the first place whereas the europeans probably would have seen it the common folk as you know um, a weapon out for warfare right hmm yeah i think so and i think that still stands today i mean i know uh, natives or first nations people in canada who are actually for the winter uh season they hunt and that's their source of meat um never step foot in a walmart or a, a target you know yeah it's you you hunt three moose and sorry you hunt a moose and three deer and you're you're good to go until april wow um so and no i know i know a fellow who that's exactly how he gets his food for the winter he's a cree um a Korean Indian from Alberta. So, you know, these these are the methods of um, of, of life and mm. the relationship with nature that I suppose, whether we acknowledge them or not, have a, a very zen, um, a very mindful um, sort of status. Or, uh, you know, they're very mindful in their in their very essence. Yeah, Robert, can you relate to the the moment? Because you know, <laughs> whether it's in my room as mundane as throwing, you know a scrunched up piece of paper into the paper waste paper basket or um just playing beer pong <laughs> whenever you're throwing or projecting a projectile and trying to aiming at something or trying to hit something there's mm. almost like this very narrow bandwidth of the mind space that if you hit it um you you know it's going in or it's going to hit the target before it mm. has and it, 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 it it's just like almost an enlightenment of confidence that just like it's, it's all it's almost like you believe it so much that it, it, it that, that it that it hits or <laughs> it's it's a weird one it's almost if you believe it hard enough there's a brief glimmer or a flash a window where you can throw it and it will go in mm mm <laughs> so you're saying you sort of preempt successfully landing that projectile by thinking you're going to do it right but 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 not even thinking but knowing it's going in yeah i mean i i th and and what what do you what would you saying brother bear that that kind of brings with it that that's sort of part and parcel of um a mindful practice well, I, I don't know what it is, but I just wanted to see if you'd relate to it because it was it's almost like it boils up and, it, and it's there for a flash, for a merely microsecond. And if you don't mm. throw it at that very moment at which it peaks, then you won't miss because as soon as it peaks, there is a single grain of doubt and and then it w w you obviously miss. But, it, but mm. it, it, it's just when you hit it at that right, that accumulation point, at that peak point, of belief that you are going to make the target that it seems to make it and if you don't it's because there was a grain of doubt and i don't i don't know i've experienced it mm. maybe 
a, a single digit number of times in my life but it was kind of profound enough for me to remember them all yeah uh, I actually do relate to what you're saying and I think my interpretation of that is is actually mind chatter um, p- particularly doubtful or negative mind chatter yeah I think you're right uh, I think that's what you you may be talking about where you've kind of you've got that overthinking or you've got that ounce of doubt in your mind and that actually um, makes the outcome the exact opposite of the one you want it to be. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's mm. when you shut, it's rather like that. That's you've done, you've kind of spoken about the inverse of it, right? It's when you've silenced, mm. then the pool is completely still and there's no negative mind chatter, not even a whisper. Mm. That's when you throw in. If you throw in that slim window, if you can generate that window, then you make the target. Exactly. Yeah. Conversely, if you, as you just said, you you make that slim window you're gonna you're gonna hit the target and I, and I think that's um that is the case in different practices that's the case um you know in in hunting that's the case in um you know the way that you we speak to others and we come across to others um but it's it's particularly pronounced when you're talking about almost like a mathematical uh result you know did we get it or did we not it's very binary mm. um and and I also think that 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 how that that sort of feeds into to the joys of of those kind of activities because it's a yes or a no. There's not there's no sort of cloud in the middle, you know. Yeah. And Alan Watts would refer to that as sort of the prickly pursuits as opposed to the gooey pursuits. Um, yeah. Uh, but there is a lot of joy in the prickly pursuits because you know they're very binary. They're very yes no. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think those sorts of prickly pursuits tend to be of a sports nature or an example of those prickly pursuits are generally sports nature because either you win or you lose or you make the target mm. or you you fail to make the target so uh, yeah mm. and, and i think it, it helps with iterative improvement it's one of the best things to work because you you can start to be quite analytical and be able to measure how far you're off the target and what you need to improve in order to make it next time so and I think yeah. it's it's one of those pursuits that lends itself to incremental improvement and is therefore quite a rewarding pursuit. Yes, yeah, definitely incremental improvement and, you know, continuously aiming small, missing small um, and repeating that um, until, you know, you you get to that level of just stupefying consistency. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, th- I think... Um, pulling the conversation closer back to sort of the essence of buddhism um and its early formation i think um you know we're we're talking about fairly uh, loose concepts with buddhism but the a lot of it really came forward from setting forth a middle way um and the middle way is that of between extremes so on one side you got um complete indulgence um and on the other side, you've got aestheticism. Um, so, you know, severe self-discipline, avoidance of any form of, relig- of, of indulgence mm-hmm. um, at any given point. So I think, I think there's a lot of value to be taken from the, the middle way um, when you, you know, you're landing that arrow or when you're making any kind of judgment in life. Is that something... When we talk about the Tao, is the Tao relevant there, as in 
the yin and the yang being able to straddle that thin tightrope between order and chaos uh, I think I think that that is the essence of of the Tao, just because it's it's a realization of um, humans being only a small part of a larger process um, of of a larger nature, um, and the best actions that ultimately make sense are those of balance. Um, so, the Tao is is to some degree that, but the Tao meaning the way or the path is also. Um, has has very similar connotations to to Zen ideas because it's about you know following your true nature uh, and spread expressing yourself moment by moment. Yeah, yeah, I can completely relate to that, and I think you know that's what a lot of sort of this generic self help stuff can like owes its roots to Buddhism, but it often is so misconstrued and sort of put into these cheesy um, one line <laughs> snippy bites, and you know mm. they may work well for a marketing campaign but they sort of muddy the waters in terms of the purity of the source mm. and what the intention yeah. was when it came from that source right yeah and i think the the source is is in its essence buddhism is fairly vague um I'll be honest when I say, you know, it's open to interpretation. It is a religion of no religion. So that's going to be taken and abused by, you know, snake oil salesmen and different yeah. different marketeers, different like <laughs> self-helpers, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in today's social media age, people jump on that sort of thing. So, but it's, um, mm. I, I, I suppose, um, because Buddhism is quite formless, shapeless, is there some sort of structure we can take a bite into yeah i'd say there's two structures with buddhism so and this is this is also as someone who, who quite enjoys structure um i think that the the two that come to mind are the the four noble truths and the eightfold path uh, or the noble eightfold path so starting with the four noble truths and this is actually something that really isn't covered uh, by any kind of sloppy interpretation of buddhism or any kind of marketing <laughs> interpretation and the the four noble truths are basically the first one is understanding the truth of suffering um so life is in some way full of suffering whether that's yourself or others around you um suffering however um largely this is the second one comes from desire and wanting um I know you and I have discussed this in full on previous podcasts as well, Brother Bear. Sort of the, I, I think you termed, there was a, a term for it, um, the something trap, um, whereby, you know, you're chasing, in a lot of people's cases, uh, materialistic gains. Um, mm. But very quickly you go back to baseline. Um, yeah. So that's your second noble truth. Um, the third, which is my favorite, is that the suffering stops when your desire and wanting stops. Um so that sort of encourages you to um, really enjoy what you have around you, not focus on what you don't have. Mm. Um, obviously, that's way easier said than done. Mm. Um, but it's certainly an interesting aspiration because the mindset shifts to, okay, instead of focusing on what I don't have and what I want, we're focusing on the things I've been given or I've worked for um, yeah. and how far I've come. And yeah. then yeah, the I fourth... Think... Sorry, go on. I was going to say about the fourth one, just being um, 
to stop the desires and wants, you you follow onto the eightfold path. But we'll go on to that next after you've said what you were going to say. Yeah, I was just going to say that gratitude one I think is so key. I've, I've noticed that personally is gratitude. Obviously, you can't really hold two feelings or thoughts at the same time. But there is the idea that if you can hold a prolonged feeling of gratitude and it comes from a genuine place it sort of staves off feelings of you know depression or anxiety because you just can't be grateful and depressed at the same time they're mutually exclusive in that sense <laughs> and yeah. the other thing is that i'm completely you know if you, the, 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 on, on the flip side of being grateful there's like like you said if we see some success we acclimatize to it all too quickly at that point you know if the same success or the same sort of I don't know, bonus is received next year. It is not seen in the same level of gratefulness and um, sort of met with the same happiness at all. And mm. so, yeah, your baseline sort of goes up and it erodes your enjoyment and gratefulness centers, if that makes any sense. Mm. So it erodes your baseline in terms of what makes you truly happy and fulfilled. And I think we have more control over that baseline then we'd like to lead ourselves to believe mm. so you think that, that there's actually the capacity can to control and be aware of that baseline uh, more than more than people are generally aware of i think i think we have the capacity and you know whether it's because we don't want to really know because we realize that baseline has sort of strayed grossly away from where we you know we'd say we're, we're not grateful for all the basic things we have and all the amazing things we had a great education great jobs and all this stuff and you know people would kill to have this so we're almost mm. embarrassed to do that level of introspection to the point of where we, we realize that we should be a hell of a in most cases a hell of a lot more grateful than we are um and but yeah. I, I think that's a healthy exercise albeit a painful one maybe definitely uh because it, it begs humility of you and yes it's one it, it, the problem is as well, I think, and this comes back to what we were saying about being in the moment as opposed to always thinking of the next thing, the future thing. Um, I think the issue we face in modern society is that it's almost seen as a weakness to be content with what you have uh, and grateful for what you have. It, it, you know, and, and it, okay, we say, okay, be grateful for your family, for your health and things like that. But on a materialistic level, um, I think this is um, this is why I, I enjoy the Four Noble Truths because I actually think that that's the aspect of modern Buddhism that's often left out. Um, people, when they say I practice Buddhist ideas or practice Buddhist activities, they're talking about yoga, they're talking about being Zen. It's very sexy to talk about those things, you know. It's, you know, you can broadcast that on your social media, but the issue is there, you're completely missing the point. You know, it's not about broadcasting your own uh, achievements in Buddhism. That was kind of the opposite of the, ori the original teachings. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's about recognizing um, that, you know, you, there is suffering in the world. Um, you're one of those people suffering because you're always wanting and desiring more. Um, how can you address that? Mm. Mm, that's it's an interesting um i suppose that the, the desire thing that's true to an extent but it's maybe not true of someone who genuinely 
has nothing, right? So so that I think it, it's true for anyone who's already had their basic needs met, as in shelter, food. Um, mm. But it, until those needs are met, I think, you know, desires are, at least until then, desires, those desires are warranted, right? To have it the It should basics. be justified. Right. So yeah. I think after, maybe at some point after that, then, yeah, you can question on a case-by-case basis of how mm. much your unhappiness is being driven by desires of superfluous materialistic mm. stuff. And I think that probably applies to the vast, vast majority of Western society, for example. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is where Buddhism, and this is a, this is a, um, an issue I've come to, is, is where Buddhism is at odds with materialism. Um, and I don't mean materialism as in um, just consumption and purchasing things. I just mean the pursuit of, I suppose, political or social ideas that focus on, you know, reinvestment in the self of, uh, you know, monetary gains or materialistic gains. And that mm. could that could literally just be, for example, uh, in an unequal society, having socialist ideas. Um it could yeah. be something as simple yeah. as that. That's a that's a materialistic concept. You know, I think wages should be this much higher. I think um, UBI is a good idea. Um, but I think when we're looking at, say, a, a, a sort of developing world lens and we're talking about um, areas where people don't have enough clean water, then suddenly the conversation is very different. Yeah, exactly. But I think yeah, if we assume the Western context, in which this you know absolutely applies to for the vast majority, it's mm. um, an interesting one because the vast majority of people have those basic needs met. And I've also seen a subtle sort of push away from maybe physical material goods to you know justifying more money for the sake of. You know, you can you you can you can be quite conniving with yourself as to why you want more money, mm. um, and you know today it's maybe not so much the physical assets and goods and shoes and whatever. It's maybe a little bit more around seemingly the the motives for money hiding behind a, a veil of seemingly noble um, aims and aspirations, such as freedom and traveling. And um, I just want to be free. I just want to have the choice of to work or not to work or where I want to work or having that dream job. Mm. You know, having mm. the choice sort of to take my time and find myself and then, you know, deciding <laughs> what career path I should go down or what I'm best suited to. And I'm sure there's mm. some merit to that, but I think it's also like a slithery orroboros finding its way to justify capital accumulation. How dare they? <laughs> so sort of like a backdoor way of... Uh, right. justifying that yes yeah. through more supposedly noble um aspirations yeah sort of less less obviously materialistic or less sort of tangibly materialistic yeah asp- aspirations and i think that might be a step in the right direction it's probably better than just you know i want some new balenciagas but um <laughs> <laughs> well i th- i think it carries um more storytelling um it carries more depth hopefully more depth as a result of that um, and I, I was going to say it's less burdensome on the environment, but obviously the burden of traveling is huge. So forget about that. <laughs> but um, I, I know what you're saying. Like it's it's something different. It's new, and it's there seems to be 
a greater pursuit of of depth in in pursuing experiences and, yeah. and principles as opposed to just objects. Yeah, and the common denominator with all the more all the above I listed was was really the luxury of choice, the luxury of choice of being able to take a gap year whenever you like, you know, the mm-hmm. ability to live wherever you want in the world and not really mm-hmm. worry about money. Um, and yeah, the, the, I think the ultimate ability and freedom to be completely mobile and do whatever you want. Mm. Yeah, I think it's taking off that pressure, isn't it? Um, and yeah. the smarter people have figured out that actually the constant climb for higher wages to spend more um, that presents you with, uh, you know, less disposable income in the end. So therefore, you get that Ouroboros back to the constant um, demand for higher wages. I think the smarter people are sort of putting that to one side um, and actually taking different paths. That doesn't necessarily have to be one involving pursuing experiences and travel but just different ideas in what to do uh, with their money and their lives and actually, in a way, putting their own pursuits and passions first. Yes, and I think probably the best way to look at it is maybe you can be a bit more, hopefully the next iteration is being more altruistic in those aspirations. So Mm. maybe not so much about just me traveling, but actually somehow contributing to the communities you touch globally. Mm. and whether in in some meaningful tangible way i don't know how that there's probably a plethora of ways you could do that but it's Mm. an interesting one for sure yeah it is and that that actually brings me on to the the eightfold path because that's all that's more granular and that's a little granular and that's a little bit more about lifestyle choices um so that's sort of the 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 four noble truths ends on you know basically stopping these desires and wants that cause suffering through the path and um as part of that there's um your your right intention and freeing your mind of of bad thoughts um right speech so reducing uh words or language that hurt others uh right action which is working for the good of others um right livelihood respecting life right effort resisting evil mm-hmm. right concentration which is practicing meditation uh, right mindfulness which we've covered already controlling your thoughts um, and then the final one which is actually the most ambiguous uh, which a lot of people like is the um, the right view knowing truth um, and that's where it sort of becomes the religion of no religion because everyone has their own idea of truth for one it may be um, you know just pursuing unrelentlessly science and scientific progress for someone else it may be the divine worship of uh, an abrahamic god Um, so you know there's many different ways to look at that but that's how we can perhaps take the eightfold path to be more altruistic and to to lead a life that basically makes you happier and makes others happier around you yeah and i think people are quickly starting to realize that i mean at least i think we're firmly in that stage of where we realize material possessions at least for those enlightened among us i'd really don't bring much in the way of happiness you know once the basic needs have met been met in terms of physical possessions and you're adequately sheltered and clothed for me at least there's sort of uh, not a huge amount of 
joy derived from additional possessions because they're quite quickly no. at that point they're quite superfluous other than if they you know sort of pertain to a hobby or something that brings you great joy mm. but yeah other than that they, they, they quite quickly become quite vacuous right so i think maybe moving to oh, yeah you know yeah. freedoms and being able to be more mobile and footloose geographically and sort of being able to help more that, that those are all um sort of aspirations that are tending in the right direction yeah and i th i think that the material possession has to have a feedback loop into personal development um you know it could be a hobby it could be greater stability greater freedom you know fill in the blank that makes you happy mm -hmm. um but you need to have that feedback loop um in order to you know warrant them better than baseline um but yeah it's these are interesting aspirations as well freedom and um helping others caring for others you know um and i suppose all of these ideas are quite zen in their nature um and would would certainly fall under the sort of buddhist banner um in terms of how living the the buddhist life or, or living the zen way mm, yeah and so going right back to where these sort of seeming deficiencies or what we perceive to be deficiencies or the, the root of the unhappiness in terms mm. of these desires or unfulfilled desires. What's the proposed solution or is there one that seems to prevail or come from Buddhism mm. and its teachings? Yeah, so that's a really good question because as it can be accused of being a vague doctrine um, or a vague set of ideas, you can often be left with Buddhism feeling like, well, what do I do now? You know, the kind of what do I do now syndrome of, well, how do I improve myself and others around me? I think, you know, the, the two concrete ways, and this comes back to sort of your, your Alan Watts, um, is just understanding the level of oneness um, between yourself and the environment around you um, and the people around you. Um, the trees, the oceans, you know, friends and family or just everyday people on the street. And that oneness is twofold in its effects. So on one side of things, once you um, presumably achieve that oneness, you suffer a great deal more because you feel the environment suffering and you feel the people around you is suffering. Um, but in another way, that leads you to take action um, and following sort of the eightfold path um, on one side. And once you follow that path, you're, in theory, going to be living a more fulfilling life that is governed by kindness, the right action, the right effort, the right view, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, the action side to it. And then on a personal level, um, we'd be looking at just that internal comfort of mindfulness. And once you get to that level of mindfulness, you know, for some people, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people never reach you know, nirvana or whatever you want to call it, but you can work towards a level of mindfulness that helps you realize that, you know, on any given day, if all you need is your bedroom, and there's never been a more important time to have this conversation, but if all you need is, is your bedroom to meditate in um, and a minimal amount of food and water, um, as insane as that sounds, um, if you can bring it down to that purest level, um, then anything on top of that is a sort of, a beautiful bonus. Mm. 
Yeah. Does that somewhat answer your question? It does somewhat answer my question. Yeah, I, th- I think sort of the two teachings, one of trying to focus at all focus less of your mind's bandwidth on desires and the pursuit of Mm. those desires frees up in turn bandwidth for more altruistic pursuits Mm. external to yourself other people nature as a whole the planet and if everyone were to pursue that philosophy that teaching then it would by definition lift everyone up yes exactly if we're if we're to extrapolate that and and put it on a societal level it definitely would do um but you're right in separation there of your intrinsic and your extrinsic your intrinsic is your mindfulness um and your extrinsic is your eightfold path and how you treat others around you and the environment around you so that's Mm. that can be you know the way you talk to your colleagues um the way you treat say the environment and the nature around you the intrinsic is a more selfish and self-serving but still important um aspect of this um, and that could be you know when you're down at the archery range or when you're doing the dishes mm. and so brother bear how come is are these um, buddhist teachings something you've always been interested in and somewhat um informed on or is it something you've pursued more recently well you know i haven't actually pursued these as much as i want to have wanted to recently i first became aware of buddhism as a child um because we have in my hometown in milton Keynes, the mk uh, represent <laughs> represent mk brov we have um i believe it's the first ever peace pagoda in the western world no so way. yeah and and that's um I, I am scrambling to find the date that it was constructed, but I think it was in the late, sort of the early 80s. Um, and that uh, is situated next to a, uh, a very large Buddhist temple mm-hmm. that is um, has a beautiful uh, lake with some, some koi in it. And um, it's, a, it's a beautiful um, ornate building um, with, with Japanese-style architecture. Um, and it's run by a group of Buddhist monks. So I would go down there with my mum for Buddha's birthday um, and various other meditation sessions. Um, <clears throat> but that was just sort of, I wasn't really greatly aware of the teachings of Buddhism until I became an adult. Um, and sort of 2013 or 14, um, a friend of mine very much got me into the uh, the teachings of it and how you can enact these teachings in your day-to-day life. That's fascinating. I'm just looking at a picture of it now. It's quite a beautiful, serene area. It's just by a little lake or pond, right? Yes, it's by uh, Willen Lake. Um, So it's a very uh, beautiful artificial lake, actually, in in Milton Keynes. I mean, everything's artificial there. But (laughs) the Peace Pagoda is one of the... uh, um, the only i suppose on on the horizon it's a very distinctive feature um and it's a very spiritual place they do lantern uh, releases there um for buddha's birthday and a bunch of other celebrations um That's but so yeah I, I mean has have have you had much of a exposure to to buddhism over the years brother bear or is something that you're just getting into no, not a huge amount. Um, it's it's an interesting um, 
religion and it's it's an in, interesting how flexible it is and how accommodating it is just looking at the peace pagoda at willen lake completed in september 1980 we just had the 40 year anniversary bro bear ah oh, happy birthday happy <laughs> birthday pagoda yeah i thought it was the uh, i was gonna say 1982 but a 1980 wrong wrong 1980 wrong <laughs> but we must go there for the 50th year anniversary Ten years time. I'd love, to, I'd love to go there and celebrate the doubt with you, brother Bear. <laughs> well, for, for me, brother Bear, going back to your question, I haven't heard or been in, in close proximity to Buddhism, um, other through various high quality documentaries on YouTube, and um, mm. this uh, <laughs> old flatmate of mine, who um, whose brother was a, a monk, and just about a people's monk. own experiences you know, going to these Buddhist retreats, uh, silent retreats. And then my psychologist, um, who also was very much into the Buddhist teachings, particularly adopted mm. the mindfulness practices of Buddhism, or a lot of them that stem from Buddhism and Eastern philosophy. And mm. did, I think this is an interesting area within psychology, because I think mindfulness as a practice and Zen and um, the meditation is something that's increasingly mainstream and seen as a very powerful way uh, to heal. Mm. Yes, yeah. Great that you use the word heal there, Brother Bear. That's a, mm. it's a, it's a brilliant aspiration um, that, that comes with, with Buddhism and med meditative practice. Um, healing the soul healing those around you yeah yeah and and brother bear tell me tell me more about how you came across alan watts and what you've learned from him because we've often i feel like we've often dropped his name in discussions you know mm -hmm. whether it's been at the pub or you know just on walks or whatever we've actually talked about him but i've never really got from you you know where you found out about alan watts i was i was really not surprised but He's he's not someone everyone knows. Um, so how did you find out about him? Uh, so it was, I think, for looking at, as many years ago now, before uni or around uni time, um, mm. probably sort of high school years, looking at YouTube and I was looking at things around Buddhism and I just found him s such a charismatic figure, even if it was only the audio. But I'm so, you know, so grateful he recorded all of these lectures and it was just fascinating what he was saying and so difficult to re-articulate his words because he was such an articulate man himself and I could never do it justice. But it's amazing what he was saying and so much of it sort of, you've got common themes within Alan Watts like overthinking and the monkey mind and things. Um, he'd almost talk you through, if I really listened in and tuned into his words, which I did on a number of occasions, there was one particular time I remember I tuned in when I was on a train and he talked about how you almost look at reality, uh, well, 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 I suppose, uh, you know, life is this show, right? Mm. and there's some people who are extremely involved in this game and you know he talks about them in the analogy of they're really far out at sea you can still see them from the beach but the people on the beach realize this is all a game and you know it's all a bit at the end of the day quite hilarious that we're you know going mm. about playing these funny roles and going to offices and wearing these suits and it's all quite amusing mm. for someone who 
because because there's there's two <laughs> ways to live life right there's one that you're the people who who play the game well there's the people who go mental they realize it's a game and they can't <laughs> handle it and, and then there's the people who um obviously are in the game and fully immersed in it and don't really realize or have even the time or second or don't give the time to step back and realize what they're in mm. which is 99.9 percent of people i'd say and yeah. then there's the people who realize it's a game but play it anyway because they realize that's the best way to be mm. in a in a world and to function as a useful and productive member of society mm. um so there's those who yeah so you no know, that that, that yeah. was an interesting sort of piece that i remember him talking about. I, I think i think um bill hicks has sort of got his own interpretation of that where he calls it the ride um and there's a there's a great video on youtube with him summarizing that sort of a ride or a roller coaster um and and just the acknowledgement that it's just a game or it's just a ride it's a play and we're all actors yeah exactly there's uh, many metaphors you can use for it but i i think the third one um of what you said the third outcome sort of those that recognize that it's a game but still um they play it because they know it's um, you know, it gives them the the highest level of functionality in society, but their awareness allows them to step back and actually just be taken by sort of the uh, the, the the Zen lily of life and float mm. a little mm. bit and not get too worked up by these things. No, and, and not overthink it. You know, this is mm. a beautiful, incredible place and universe you live in, and you know how lucky, how lucky. You know, you you, you really have one. So why not enjoy it while you're here, whatever it is, and then, mm. you know, see what happens in the next one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and as uh, Alan Watts said, you know, he's always he says, <laughs> better, better luck next time around. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, screwed <laughs> up this time. Better luck in the next life. <laughs> exactly. And it, it's so, the Alan Watts story is so interesting because he was a, a theology student, started off as a Episcopal priest, um, believe it or not, and it was only when he he left his ministry um, he became more engaged with sort of Zen movements um, yes. and and Asian studies. Um, I think his timing was brilliant as well because he sort of entered the uh, the sort of spiritual um, I suppose spiritual teaching market when um, he when the the hippie counterculture. I was just going to say the hippie w- movement. He was a bit of a hippie, wasn't he? Really. He was a bit of a hippie, but I think he was at odds with the hippie counterculture movement in that he... Not to trivialise him, but you know. No, certainly not to trivialise him. He was definitely involved in it as sort of a yogi character, and he did explore psychedelics. Mm. But what his uh, uh, his point that he rallied, rallied around was that, you know, you can meditate, uh, you can experience mindfulness, you can experience different disciplines um you know to reach those those zen levels Mm. or you can just take a pill or a tab of acid to get there Mm. and i think what i always took from alan watts is his critique of um laziness in in that aspect of exploring human consciousness and actually what's far more fulfilling in mindfulness is is discipline yes absolutely Many quotes I think mm. is about discipline. There's one particular is like you know if you're you're not really in control of you if you don't have discipline or something. You, mm. you, you don't you're not the master of your own 
your own self if you if you if you're not disciplined. I think it actually comes mm. from uh, that great marathon runner Eluid Kipchoge, who's the record holder. Anyway, I diverge. Mm. Uh, but yes, no, 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 very, very, <laughs> no. But th- that's a very that's a very sort of uh, appropriate uh, comment there, appropriate quote. And and Ted Nugent, the crazy bastard as he is, his mm-hmm. one of my my favourite quotes by him is, you know, when when he was in the sixties, um, you know, the hippies we're all saying, you know, you need to explore human consciousness, but you can't because of all these pressures in life, because of work. All these pressures have led us to drinking and um, taking taking drugs. And his quote, his comment to that was, you know what, fuck those pressures. You be the source of pressure. You get behind the bow and arrow and you shoot. You know, mm, yeah. that level of discipline is, is how you overcome those pressures. You, you don't give in to those pressures through, you know, yes. just a tab of acid at the weekend. Yes, and this is like the same two sides of the same coin. People think yeah, they're free when when they're allowed to do whatever they want, and whatever they want is often just sitting on the couch and doing nothing. Mm. And actually, it's the opposite. It's actually when you force yourself to do things you don't want, that's when you're free. Mm. And this is what mm. Mm. Lewis says. He's it's just a simple quote. All he says is the only disciplined ones in life are free. Only the disciplined ones in life are free that's a that's an excellent statement yeah that's and and you you've had other people who've thought and and made made relevant comments i mean I've jo- joe rogan also that, talks all about. over the shop yeah i've seen echoes of that same all statement over. or sentiment everywhere exactly it's like the, the discipline frees you it does free you it and and joe rogan talks about the real high in life being actually being disciplined and being uh, really a servant to your goals and when you achieve them then you truly feel that level of freedom. Mm, um, mm, mm. You know, you, there's so many echoes of that. You can quote Thomas Jefferson in the in the development of the U.S. Constitution, where he 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 does not separate uh, freedom from responsibility. You know, that's. Yeah. I mean, in in my opinion, and I'm sure I'd get a lot of criticism for this, but I feel like there's uh, echoes of Buddhism all throughout the U.S. Constitution, especially for its time. Um, you know the 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 concepts of responsibility and treating others right, freedom, um, but also having that level, um, that middle way um, that that isn't at odds um, with with complete, uh, you know, some level of indulgence. So, you know, I feel like that that kind of sentiment, as you say, has just been echoed throughout documents and videos and, and podcasts throughout history. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's everywhere, isn't it? It's like this one mm. common denominator you see repeated throughout history, throughout ages, and mm. with people from all walks of life, right? Everything from athletes through to the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the, the what I wanted to get across with this podcast is that Buddhism can be found everywhere um, and in everyone. What, whatever your political beliefs, whatever your other spiritual commitments are, um, it's less so a set of dogma or doctrines, and it's more about pursuing that middle way, um, walking the Tao, and then you get your structure from following the Eightfold Path as best you can, um, and having in the back of your mind those noble truths so you don't become a... Uh, I suppose a slave to your own self-loathing or your own self-righteousness. Yeah, 
Exactly, because that's such a common trap, especially these days. And, you know, the um, comparison is the thief of joy. I think that rings true, particularly with today's age of social media. That's all too easy to do, even for mm. those of us who actively try and avoid it. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, often to be limited because it is in- inescapable to some degree. Um, but, but yeah, comparison is the thief, thief of joy. Um and, and it's actually often what, you know, generates these desires or phony desires, right? It's kind of what he's got. I mean, it, it arguably is the only thing that creates these desires, particularly ones that don't have a true or valuable end mm. in mind or don't mm. have a, a, a real treasure at the end. Hmm. Yes, definitely. Materialistic particularly, right? Definitely. And, and there's so many situations where you've you've been content with your day, your week, your month, and then you see someone with something on social media and you think, I want that, you know, and it's something you never even considered wanting before. Um, yeah. But where, where has that come from? And it's come from the ego and it's come from comparison. Yeah, yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. So the the beauty the beauty of Buddhism, which I'd I'd love anyone listening to take home, is that it's not about self perfection. You know, it's not about ultimate divinity. Um, it's about the aspiration to to treat others right, reduce suffering, um, and ultimately live in absolute reality. Beautiful words, brother bear. I think we'll leave it there, brother bear glorious well that rounds out 2020 doesn't it and that's a, a lovely podcast to end on brotherly bear yes i hope so I, I wanted i wanted to leave um people with some spiritual guidance i think it's good to hit pause and i think that was a uh, a nice neutral way to to end this crazy year this crazy rodeo of a year <laughs> it's been a one crazy rodeo that's for sure i don't want to run on, don't want, i don't <laughs> want another ride on that thanks <laughs> no 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 get me off get me off now <laughs> 2021 here yeah. we come ladies and gentlemen it's been an absolute pleasure this been this, this well, 2020 has been a significant year for brobest talk it's brobest talk has launched um 16 yes. podcasts ago now wow we've been going strong brother bear yeah this was our inaugural year and and cheers to to many more uh going forward in 2021 yeah, absolutely relentless every two weeks pow pow <laughs> <laughs> Pow! See you on the next Thank one. you for listening, everyone. Over and out. Till next time. Happy New Year.